Well, this morning, uh, we are in Ruth chapter 2. I wasn't sure if I was going to do this, but I'm going to do this. Uh, who's still in their pajamas? Uh, if you're brave enough, uh, admit it to Ian online there, and we can all be jealous. Uh, if someone wouldn't mind running to, the, to, their, to their kitchen to grab me a cup of coffee, that would be fantastic as well. Uh, have one of those for me. We're in, in Ruth chapter 2, so I invite you to open up a Bible, your, your, your tablet, whatever else, get to, to connect with us there. Let me just quickly catch us up on where we were uh, two weeks ago as we opened this series called uh, Redeeming Love as we look at the book of Ruth. And again, uh, our sermons are all online. You can head back to our, our website and find them there uh, if you missed the week. In chapter 1, we opened, we, we skimmed through all of chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago, and, and we saw that open that, that there was a famine in the land. That in Bethlehem, uh, the house of bread, as Bethlehem meant, there was no bread. And so we tracked with this family, led by Elimelech, and we said his name means, my God is king. And they left Bethlehem, and they went to Moab. Now Moab was not the place that you wanted to be if you were one of God's people. It was uh, running to another people, running to another God, uh, and, and this group, this clan, this, this land was severely against God and his people, basically right since the beginning. And so Elimelech left the presence and the people of God, and he led his family to Moab. And then we read in that chapter that while in Moab, Elimelech dies. And after he dies, his two sons marry local women, marry Moabite women. But these women remain barren in the time. And all of this really is a picture of the, the suffering that this family goes through as they have left, the, again, the presence and the provision of God. Eventually we read that the, the two sons die without any children of their own. And so then we have Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And after 10 years, Naomi declares she's going back to Bethlehem because she's heard the famine has ended. The, the house of bread has bread again. And this, for us, turns into a picture of repentance. That, that Naomi turns back to God after spending 10 years away. Now, the one daughter-in-law, or Orpah, decides to go back to her home, to her people in Moab. But Ruth says, I'm going with you, Naomi. And in verse 16, we read that she says to Naomi, Where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And, and your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. And what we see in Ruth is really a, a conversion experiment. A conversion experience. She's, she's giving up everything that she's known, everything that she's grown up with. She's been a part of this family now for, for 10 years, but she's giving up everything that she was rooted in to go back with Naomi and follow and serve Yahweh, the God of Israel. And we keep reading, when Naomi and Ruth get back to Bethlehem, Naomi says to the people of this, this small town that come out to greet her and say, is, is this Naomi? Has she come back? She says to them, don't call me Naomi which means pleasant, but instead call me Mara, which means bitter, because I went away full and I've come back empty. And so that's where we pick up as we enter chapter 2 here. For Naomi, things had gone from bad and a famine to worse where she lost her husband to even worse where she lost her sons as well. Now for some of us, maybe for many of us, that may feel like right where we are today. The plans we made for ourselves haven't turned out. Maybe our, our health isn't as good as we'd like. Maybe our families aren't as close as they like. Maybe, maybe there's just brokenness in relationships, and we just feel the weight of that. 
Some of our, our hopes that we had for the future are dashed. And all of that is not to mention all of the, the fear and anxiety and uncertainty that surrounds us with this coronavirus pandemic. And so in all of this, I hope that we realize that, that we are living in, in a broken world, in a world that has been affected by sin. And so we're surrounded by the effects of that sin and rebellion against God. But today, what we want to talk about and what we're going to see in this text is God's providence, God's providing in the midst of their situation and in ours as well. We'll see that God's not confused, he's not distracted, he's not distraught or distant, but rather he's in control, even when it's hard for us to see that. Now just a quick definition, and we'll see this come clearer throughout the morning for, for providence. Uh, providence is, is God looking out for or caring for his people. Providence is the reality that, that God is at work uh, in and through the circumstances of our lives, even and maybe especially when we can't see that clearly. And now as we read the book of Ruth, uh, pay attention to how many times and, and, and the ways that the narrator tells this story. Notice that, that 20 times in the story, uh, Naomi or Ruth or Boaz, who we're going to meet today, mention God. But only twice does the narrator, the storyteller himself, mention God. And so what the narrator is trying to do here is help us understand that, that even though the characters were fully aware of the reality of God, we saw last week when Naomi got back, she said, the Lord Almighty has done this. She's, she still has some trust in God. So even though the characters are aware of the reality of God and that, that he is, is real and is present, they actually don't have a clue what he's up to and how he's working behind the scenes. Which, if I can be perfectly honest, I can identify with quite often in my life. I can be stuck in something and I can't see how God's going to work through this, yet he is at work behind the scenes. That's providence. Now, lots of times, maybe you and I might just say, listen, I wish God just told me what he was up to in the moment. It would have been so much easier to see, oh, so much easier to deal with at the time. But a few writers have commented on this for us. Soren Kierkegaard put it this way. He said, fundamentally, the problem with life is, is that it's best understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. He's saying, it doesn't matter who you are or what you believe in, things make sense when you look back on them. But we've got to go the other way. We've got to live forwards. John Flavel, who wrote the book, The Providence of God, said this, the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. It's not read left to right, but instead right to left. And so what they're both saying is that so often we have a hard time seeing God at work in our lives until we take the time to look back at the season we've made it through. Until we have that opportunity to have a little bit of space from it, then we can look back and we can see God's hand all over the place. That's why here at Trinity we wrap up every calendar year with a, a Sunday solely looked at looking back. So we can remember the way God has been faithful in the past weeks and month and year. See, the more we do this, the more that we are able to look back at our lives, and the more we can look back and see God's hand at work, the more we can look back and see that, that Jesus is, in fact, the hero of our story, not me, the more we can look back and see all the ways that God has been faithful in the past, it really helps us face the present situation with, with less, hopefully less, but without grumping uh, and complaining. And it also helps us move forward with less or without fear or anxiety. 
I've seen God be faithful. I've seen God provide in the past, so he'll be with me today, and he's going to lead me into the future. Now we see often with the people of Israel as we read through the Old Testament, and, and probably if we're honest with ourselves, we see in our own lives that they only look back and often, or sorry, they only look at the present, and often we only look at the present, and we get pigeonholed in the moment we're in right now, or we get pigeonholed just staring at our perceived future, but not looking back. And not looking back and see what God has done. Israel did a great job of this. They often forgot all the things God had done to, to lead them to where they were. And because they'd forgotten their past, or they'd uh, failed to remember the way God had been faithful in the past, they complained about the present and feared the future. And so in a lot of ways, that's what this little book is about. That's what Ruth is about. It's a story that, re that reminds us that God is always at work, even in ways we can't see. It's a reminder that what Paul told us in the New Testament, that, that God has a way to work all things together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, in Romans 8.28. See, providence is the working of God within the created world to bring his purpose and his will. And again, unlike what some people teach, unlike what the deists teach, God is not a distant God who started the world spinning and then has just stepped out to see how we're going to make it through the mess. No, God is actively involved in the everyday stuff of our created world. Even in the things that maybe you and I think he wouldn't care about that are so small, how could God probably care about this thing? John Flavel again says, not only the great and more, more important things, but the most minute and ordinary affairs of our lives are transacted and managed by God's providence. He says God's providence touches all the things that touch us, whether nearly or remotely. Tony Evans also gives us this picture. He says the, provinces, the providence of God has to do with the hand of God inside the glove of time. I like that. It's, it's God working in and through his creation. The idea is that, that this world and, and our lives are, are saturated by God. We may not see it in the moment, but it is true. And so here in the story of Ruth, we're going to see that. That God works out his providence through uh, at least three ways. God works his providence through uh, the prayers of his people, the pursuit of people who have faith in him, and finally through everyday people that God is working in and through. Prayers, pursuits, and people in the everyday stuff. Let's start looking at some of the prayers of God's people. We see Naomi prays. Remember, back in chapter 1, Naomi has decided to come home. She told Ruth and Orpah, go back to your families. Maybe you'll be able to find another husband there. You'll be able to, to make something of your lives if you go back. And she kind of uh, effectively prays this prayer over Ruth and Orpah as she tries to send them away in verse 8 and 9 of Ruth 1. She says, May the Lord deal kindly with you, which is a way of asking the Lord to show them favor or show them grace or be gracious to you. May the Lord give you what you don't deserve. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, with your husbands, and with me. She prays, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Now this is a way too that the narrator starts to say, listen, pay attention. We've seen this hope, we've seen this call for something to happen, and I want, he, the narrator wants us to start thinking, how on earth is God going to do this? So we start looking for that in the verses that are to come. As a, a bit of a side note, let me encourage you and encourage us that when we pray, to pray with expectation. 
Sometimes I think that's hard, right? Maybe, maybe for you it is for me sometimes. We, we pray and we move on and, and we just hope it did something. But we want to pray with the expectation that, that God will listen, and maybe that's the easy part, but not just listen, that, but that God will answer our prayers. And so as we finish praying, we should say, God, show me how you're going to answer this thing, because it may not come the way we expect. God, show me your providence at work in my life. Now, as elders here at Trinity, we've been working through uh, putting language to our mission and vision and values. And one of the ways we have articulated this core value is we've said this, that, that prayer empowers everything. And we believe this is true, and we aspire to make it even more true as we go forward. And so in this time where we can't gather together in a room to pray, I would encourage you to, to, of course, still pray on your own. Connect online and pray via video chat. It's maybe a little bit awkward at first to, to you know, be staring at a camera with your eyes closed. I don't know, but try it out. Text one another to pray together. If you've got the YouVersion Bible app, which is one of my favorite Bible apps, you can add prayer items there now. And you can share them with friends. And, and as your friends pray for that thing you've shared with them, they can click a little button that goes bleep. And you can see that someone is praying with and for you. We want to be a people of prayer. Prayer empowers everything. Now, getting back to our text. When we look at Naomi here, she's bitter. She's hopeless. She's probably anxious about the future. In chapter 8 there, she's decided to go home back to, or chapter 1, going home back to Bethlehem. But she still prays. She still prays over her daughters-in-law. And you know what's been really helpful to me in these past days? When I feel like everything is out of control and, and media and social media tells me that everything is out of control and I don't know what to do, I can pray. And I know I can do better at this. I know I can pray more. But there's absolutely something that happens inside of us and through us when we, when we voice just not a thanksgiving to God, but our concerns, our requests, our trials, and our struggles to God. So when you feel like that's all you have left, lean into that and pray. Now as we get into chapter 2, the narrator clues us in that God is going to do something here, whether or not the characters realize what he's up to or not. Ruth 2 verse 1. We read now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, so she's not completely empty. A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now we've talked about uh, several times how names are significant, and Boaz means strong warrior, or it means one that can be depended on. It's also notable that, that a little bit later in Israel's history, we find that uh, when Solomon built his temple, one of the, the pillars in that temple has the name Boaz inscribed on it. And not to give too much away, but maybe you have already noticed this too through reading Ruth, but, but Solomon is in the family line that's being established in this story. He's, he's not much later than what we're reading about here. And so you see, when, when Solomon built his temple, just a couple generations later, he, he wanted the nation of Israel to remember this strong man who believed and who trusted God and who devoted himself to do the things that God led him to do. And so Saul had one of these pillars named after his great-great-grandpa, Boaz. Also look at how the narrator describes him too. He describes Boaz as a worthy man. Now, this draws attention to several things. It's not just that he's, he's well off. It's not just pointing us to his bank balances, although that's included. But it refers more to Boaz being a man of substance, a man of character. 
Yes, he's got some wealth, but this is a man who is devoted to God as well. And we're going to see that in the actions for the rest of the book. And so let me throw this out there, gentlemen. Uh, Boaz is a model for us. Our, our church, our town, our province, our country, our world need more worthy men. Our world needs more men of substance, men of character. A lot of the question that surrounds this idea of, of being a worthy man comes down to uh, what will you be known for in the end? As I've tried to study and grow in my own leadership, I've heard it said, uh, I don't know how many times, but no one is going to stand up at your funeral and read your resume. No one's going to read your accomplishments. So we need to be constantly working on our character, on our devotion to God and his calling on our lives and our devotion to those around us. See, in the church, in, in our church, we need men who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need men who lay down their lives so that the gospel will go out. We need men who are servant leaders so that in everything they do, they see the glory of God fill the Bow Valley and fill the world. We need worthy men. Now, ladies, just before you elbow your spouse and say, hey, yeah, pay attention. If we flip ahead to chapter 3, verse 11, you notice that Ruth is described the same way. So we'll get to you in a couple weeks. And guys, listen, this isn't meant to be a guilt trip. It's always uh, you know, kind of hard for me to write these things down because I'm working on these things myself. But let's make this our prayer. Let's realize where we've come from and where we're going. And let's aspire to be known as worthy men, to be known as men of substance. In the coming hours and days and weeks, as, as, as you're texting or FaceTiming or connecting with other guys this week, throw out the question, how are you growing in this? How are you growing in your character, in your substance, in becoming a, a worthy man? Let's challenge one another in this and spur one another on towards this. We need to be praying. Again, prayer empowers everything. And, and we see in Ruth chapter 1 that Naomi prays. The second thing we see is Ruth pursues. Look at verse 2. Now, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, favor here is a, a similar or a very same idea as grace. And so as, as one writer highlights, in a sense, what, what Ruth is saying here is, Naomi, I've heard your prayer. We've made it back. And so I'm going to step out believing that God is going to answer that prayer. Ruth steps into uncertainty with faith. Her newfound faith, let me add. And in verse 2 continues, Naomi says to her, Go, my daughter. And so Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Did you see what happened in these couple of verses here? This isn't just sort of a, a marker, a place setting something to set the scene for us, but rather we watched Naomi pray and then Ruth acted. They didn't just pray and then sit and wait to see for God, what God would do or how he would show up. And often I think maybe that's, that's where we make the mistake. That's what we do. We, we get the praying part sorted, but then we don't act. We just sort of sit and wait. But I think the thing is, most often when we pray, God is inviting us to actually step into and walk towards his provision. No, absolutely, there are times where God does say, hang on, wait for a bit, and then go. We read about this in Acts chapter 1. Jesus says to the disciples, hey, listen, hang on, wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and when the Holy Spirit comes, then you will go and be my disciples. But most often, Jesus says, okay, go. Right? Matthew 28, 
Go and make disciples. Don't wait for them to come to you. He teaches, listen, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll, you'll go and you'll do these things. You'll teach these things. We are called to an active faith, not just a passive letting the world happen to us kind of faith. And so we see this in Ruth. We see her going. We see her working, stepping out in faith, stepping into the uncertainty. She's showing for us that, that yes, we pray, but then we go and we pursue God as well. We act out of what we know to be true of God and what we know we're to do as his followers as well. We pursue his providence. We head towards what we believe God will do as we trust in him. Now, a fair question in all of this is this. How do we know what God is telling us to do? Great question, one that we all need to wrestle with. Now, I believe, and we as a church believe, that, that God still speaks. He speaks through his word. He speaks. He can speak audibly. He speaks through people. He can speak in, in any number of ways. And, and as I look back on my life, I can pinpoint a handful of occurrences where, where it was just so clear that God was leading me in a direction. It wasn't an audible voice, but it was, Sean, you need to do this. Just this, this impression on my heart. But we also have the Bible. We have the Word of God, and within it, there's this whole genre, this whole uh, section called wisdom literature. And the wisdom literature teaches us to walk in the way of wisdom, to walk how God would lead us. And the book of Proverbs is kind of the, the biggest example of this. And so we have these sections in our Bible so that we would know how to do the right thing in the right way and at the right time. And so what we aspire to is to understand wisdom and understand God's providence and how he works and how he will work and, and the things that are true of him so that we walk in ways that are wise, trusting God to provide. And as we do that, we are basically doing what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, in light of all that's been going on in the last week, two weeks, three weeks, how are you doing at this? It's hard, right? And just to be really clear, trusting in the Lord with all our heart includes listening to how Dr. Dina Hinshaw advises us these days. There's wisdom in that. But it also means with everything going on, it's recognizing that, that God is still in control. God is not surprised by any of this. God's not madly scrambling to create some contingency plans because we've really messed things up this time. But we know that, that God's heart breaks as our hearts break. We know from Scripture that, that He couldn't love us anymore or He can't love us any less. He's still wanting us to, to trust Him with all our hearts. And so we act. We trust Him. We trust that as we're moving forward, each step we take, God will point us to the next step and the next step and the next step. And along the way, He will continue to direct and redirect us as we go. Proverbs 6, 9 says this, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And that's where we're putting our hope, that's where we're putting our trust, that the Lord will establish our steps. And when we're reading Ruth here, that's what we see with her, isn't it? She's heard Naomi pray for rest. She's heard Naomi pray that she would find a husband. But the immediate reality for her and for Naomi is that they need food. And so Ruth goes out to find food, gleaning in the fields around Bethlehem. Naomi prays, Ruth pursues God's provision. 
And look what happens next in verse 3. Ruth happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now we as readers have been set up here by the narrator. He's already introduced us to Boaz, the worthy man. And we see Ruth pursuing God's providence. And then Ruth happens to just stumble upon this field belonging to Boaz. Now, do you think the narrator believes this was a coincidence at all? No, not a chance. And again, this is an example for us. When we don't know what's going on in and through our circumstances, but we pray and trust God and act, he can and he will come through. Now, so often our view of our lives is like the, uh, a great picture I've heard several times, is like the underside of a, of a woven tapestry or like a, like a woven carpet. You look at the bottom and it's chaos. And as it's being made, you, you can't see what's going on. You don't know what, the, what the, the creator is doing in this tapestry. But our lives are like that. Similarly, God is weaving his masterpiece. And when we, we get the time to come around and have the final perspective, to look at it from the perspective of the master, of the creator, we can see all that he's been doing. We can see the mas masterpiece come into shape. But here's the thing. I think we often miss what God is doing because we're looking at it the wrong way. Sometimes we ask God to, to do something or say something or, or direct us some way, and then we just look out the window at the sky and hope that the clouds shift into words. Or we, we go to the grocery store and find alphabets or, or alphagetti, and we, we hope that the letters in our soup or cereal will organize themselves into the answer that we're looking for. And maybe I'm being a little bit facetious here. And sometimes we just cry and say, God, send me an angel to just answer the question here. But you know what? The word for angel in the Bible, when you break it down, it also means messenger. Which means, in a sense, that God does provide angels, messengers, but most often they're going to look a lot like you, a lot like me. It's something for us to think about. But you and I are the messengers of God, sent into our workplaces, sent into our groups, sent into neighborhoods, sent everywhere to take the message of God. Now Ruth is headed out gleaning, and uh, God had given very clear laws earlier in the Old Testament. We can read about them in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And Ruth must have known what these laws said and how she was supposed to glean because she shows up and she goes out to do it. Now those farming, what we were talking about here with this gleaning, those farming knew that as they were bundling up their grains, uh, they, they wouldn't harvest right to the edges of the field, if they were bundling things up and some dropped to the ground, don't pick it back up, just leave it. If you're harvesting your vineyard, don't strip every vine, but leave a margin, leave some back. And the concept of this was to uh, leave margin for the marginalized. This wasn't a handout, the people still had to go and work and get it, but this is one way that people were provided for in that day. Now, this generally wouldn't be a whole lot left behind, although as we look at Boaz and his generosity, we'll see that he goes way beyond what was expected of him by the law. This, this life for the life of a gleaner would be uh, similar for us in our day for, for someone going to collect cans and bottles and getting the deposit from. It wasn't much of a living, but it was something at least. And these laws, these gleaning laws, God put into place, and, and he reminded the people of Israel that, that when they were travelers, when they were sojourners, when they had come out of Egypt, and before they got to where he was taking them, God took care of them. He provided for them for 40 years in the desert. 
And so because God did it for them, they were now supposed to do the same thing. God was going to work through them for the sojourners in the land, for the widow, for the orphans, for the oppressed in their land. And so another question for us to, to wrestle with while we're living uh, uh, this kind of life, the life we are living, is, is do we have the kind of margin in our own lives so that we're not just able to give to the church, which is a good thing, but we also have something more so that when needs arise around us, we have the means to provide for others as well. That too, where we, we don't just have margin and have some means, whatever they may be, but we're also praying for opportunities and pursuing opportunities as they come and, and seizing opportunities when God says, listen, you can be Jesus to me here. You can show my love to someone in this way. How about right now? How are we doing that now? Do we have margin in our lives that, that we can, if we're able to get out, to go and take a meal to someone? Every day we hear of more, and there have been thousands of people laid off in the Bow Valley in the last week or 10 days. How can you, how can we step into that need? This is the brilliant thing, too, about how God works. He works through us obeying. He's happy to use us to fulfill what he wants to do. He provides for others through you and through me. And we get to be God's messengers we also bring the message of his tangible providence. That's how he works through his people in the everyday stuff of life. This isn't just financial as well. It's our time. Another question, have, we, have you so filled your schedule that you just don't have time for others? Now, in light of uh, coronavirus, many of us have a little bit more time on our hands than we usually do as, as activities are closed and gyms are closed and all the things have, have, have closed. So what if we start now, and what if we adjust now and, and, and fill some of that extra time with, with phoning others, with, with texting, with, with Zoom calls, with whatever, connecting others online? As a church, we've produced a great directory and a huge thanks to, to Kathy and Hanafe for continuing to update it and distribute that. Phone your way through it. And don't be scared to call someone maybe you haven't talked to face-to-face, -face, but instead call in and introduce yourself as, well, I'm so-and-so from Trinity. If you flip to this page, you'll see my face. Phone your way through it to connect with people. Use FaceTime, use Zoom, use Facebook or whatever to have a video call. There's a couple of examples of how to set these uh, programs up if you head to our website as well. What if we use the, the however long we have to social distance or self-isolate to recalibrate our schedules to have more margin in them? See, we need to have people in our lives. And in order to do that, we need to have space to have people in our lives, to, to pray for us, to encourage us through God's Word. One of the highlights for me this past week was, was getting, uh, getting online and, and getting on a Zoom call, a video call with someone, and, and reading through a chapter of the New Testament with them. And just saying, What's, what do you think God's saying to us here? How can, we, how can we learn? How can we grow from this? It was a gift. Back to our story here. If, if Boaz didn't have margin in his life, and if he wasn't obedient in this, then he wouldn't have been ready to be used by God. And we're going to see this. So again, in verse 3, Ruth happened upon this field. Or as you could say, as luck would have it, Ruth ended up in Boaz's field. Providence is at work here. God is at work through this. And just to be clear, even if you haven't caught it yet, this is not a coincidence. And from God's perspective, none of this is. 
in Ruth's life or in your life or my life. Verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Now, don't miss this either, this greeting. In, in uncertain times, the, the whole land had not yet turned back to God. There's, there's still danger around. We'll see that alluded to a bit later in the letter. But look how Boaz greets his workers. What kind of man is he? He's, he's a worthy man, as we've been told. He's a man that sees his work as worship. And he comes and he greets his workers this way, and he shows us that, that his faith is alive and vibrant. Now let me sheepishly admit, I usually don't greet people this way. When, when Arnie came in and when Ian and Hanifah came in, I didn't greet them this way. Maybe I should start. But Boaz shows up to check on his fields and he greets people with, The Lord be with you. And, the, and they answer, The Lord bless you. One writer notes that, that this language is taken from what a priest would say to the people at the end of a worship gathering in those days. It's like the, the sending out the benediction, benediction text. And for us, this is a reminder that, that when we go into our workplaces, when we go into wherever we go these days, we take the blessing of God with us. And we're called to, to bless those we interact with from an appropriate distance, of course, throughout the week. The blessing of God is not restricted to a Sunday morning gathering, but, but we can make that our prayer every moment of every day throughout the week. We've been talking a lot lately around here of how we, we gather on Sunday and then we scatter through the week. And this is just another reminder of this. Our weekend gatherings are meant to equip us to go into our week and take the glory of God with us. To take Jesus into our neighborhoods, into our offices, into our grocery stores, and now onto our Zoom calls, into our Facebook Live events, into wherever. To take Jesus everywhere we go, so that we can show people Jesus. Ruth greets his, or Boaz greets his workers, and in verse 5, then Boaz says to his young man, but the foreman here, who's in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And notice he doesn't say who is this, but rather whose young woman is this? In other words, she's saying... Uh, where does she belong? Who does she belong to? He maybe hasn't met her face to face yet. Well, we'll find out that he knows of her in a few verses. But he's trying to figure out where she, how did she get here? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman. Notice he doesn't use her name. She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She's that Moabite from Moab. She came and said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came and she's continued early in the morning until now, except for a short rest. I mean, she's working hard here too. This isn't just a, a passive act that, that Ruth is doing. She's working a long time here. We see Boaz come and ask who she is in the reply, a Moabite from Moab. But look at how Boaz addresses Ruth, who, as we've talked about a bit earlier, Ruth is a, a relatively new or, or perhaps even a brand new follower of the God of Israel, the God of Yahweh. Verse 8, Boaz says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. This is hugely significant. The other workers, the foreman just called her that Moabite from Moab. Basically, he's saying, we know her, who she is. She's come from this enemy land. It's a, it's a derogatory term even to call someone a Moabite for her, for, for the clan. That's how the workers perceived her, as a kind of a despised outsider. But look at Boaz. He comes and says, my daughter. 
Boaz sees her through the eyes of God. He sees her as a child of the creator of the universe. Gentlemen, again, Boaz is our example. Single men, married men, we need to view women as beloved daughters of God. We need to honor them. We need to protect them. We need to love them. And we need to never take advantage of them. We see this in Boaz. We see that he cares about her. We see he wants to protect her. So he says, as we continue in verse 8, he says, listen, my daughter, don't glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women, the people who are already working for him. Let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping and go after them. And have I not charged the young men not to touch you? He's looking out for her. He's caring for her. He's being generous with her. He's saying, uh, listen, stay here. It's safe. We'll see in a few verses. He's, he's heard of her character. He's heard of what he's done for Naomi. So he says, be here. He's being protective and also generous. In verse 9, he says, when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And again, this is significant. He's not just pointing her towards the water coolers and saying, hey, listen, when you're thirsty, go grab a drink. But in that day, it was expected that foreigners would draw the water for the Israelites. And beyond that, especially that women would draw water for men. But Boaz goes against all that and says, my daughter, you get to benefit from the generosity, from the work of these men. He's generous with her. And he teaches us this. Again, doesn't it? He teaches us to put others ahead of ourselves. That we don't look at relationships as, as what's in this relationship for me. What can I get out of this? But rather, he points us to relationships where we say, how can I bless the other person? How can I be generous to you? And Ruth can't believe it. Look at verse 10, how she replies, responds. Then Ruth fell on her face and, and bowed to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor? Why have I found this grace in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Ruth is blown away and amazed by this radical generosity. And notice too, she found the one she was looking for from verse 2. She says, Let me go and glean after the one in whose sight I find favor. Now listen, with Easter just a couple weeks away, when we look at Jesus on the cross, we should be impacted in the same way that Ruth is here. Jesus, why have I found favor in your eyes? Why have you taken notice of me since I have gone my own way, since I have rebelled, since I am a sinner? But the words of Jesus on the cross were, Father, forgive them. And at the cross, all our sin, our rebellion was put on him and, and his righteousness was given to us in exchange so that the resurrection, Jesus could go up to the Father and say, listen, I did everything necessary to forgive them of their sins so that now they're able to stand before you as beloved children. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, we can boldly approach, uh, approach the throne as beloved children, as heirs. We are not worthy of that. We found favor and grace in the eyes of of our Lord. Thank you, God, for that grace. Boaz answers Ruth, verse 11. All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. Of how you left your father, your mother, your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know. As we listen with our biblical theology ears, with our grand narrative ears, we say, boy, that sounds a lot like what God called Abram to in Genesis 12. Leave your father and mother and go to a place you don't know. But notice also what Boaz doesn't say here. 
He doesn't say, you found favor in my eyes because you're pretty and I'm looking for a wife and maybe I can impress you this way and attract you by being generous. No, he describes her character. He describes her substance. He describes her faith, even though it's a new faith. He starts to describe Ruth in the same way our narrator has described Boaz for us, as a worthy person. The question for us in this is, what are we looking for in people? What impresses us? Because as we're all too often, and even again in the last few days, finding out our looks, our wealth, our stuff, so much of our accolades, all of that can be taken away in an instant. But our character, our substance, the way we love and follow Jesus, that's what's most impressive. And so let me encourage you again as we connect online this week or at an appropriate distance, however, however it's going to work to, to start calling out character in one another. To point it out in people. Say, listen, I, you're, you're growing in this and it's impressive. God is working in you, in you here and, and I notice it. Keep at that. Point it out. Notice the good in other people. Notice their character because that's what lasts. As you wrap up, Boaz continues in verse 12 and says, The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Don't miss that here. Who's getting credit for what's just happened in this interaction? Not Boaz. The Lord. Boaz doesn't take credit and say, yeah, I'm well off here, have my stuff, you're, you're welcome to it. But he passes all the credit on to God. Now, as we look ahead in the story, as a bit of a, a preview of what's to come, we'll soon see that, that this prayer of, of Boaz, that the Lord repay you, uh, God's actually going to use Boaz to do that. And maybe Boaz has a bit of an inkling of what's to come here, but, but maybe not. Either way, though, he takes 